said thank yeah. you. Did I? And we said thank we you. We said saying thank you. It's okay. You, you, you. And we thanked the run. How big was this chicken it's that just, it needed a truck? Little, oh, right, right, chicken, but we're talking like a seven-ton lorry, but yeah. like, you know the sort of old Bedford type. No, it's more like a, an old Bedford type. Yeah, thing. yeah. Hello, my name's Nick Clark. Welcome to the Velocino Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Velocino podcast where the best stories have not yet been written. This week we are actually joined by the man that we believe is the most mentioned in the total <laughs> number of podcasts that we've done so far, Mr. Nick Clark. Nick, welcome to the podcast. I only listen to your podcast to wait for my name, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> wait for the name. You could make yeah, it a drinking game. game. I mean, I'll, get, I'll get angry if I haven't got one. And then you <laughs> One of the ways to describe your the reason you've been mentioned so often is that you are like the chief cajoler of people in this local area. You 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 encourage people. I don't know to what that means. Put, it means he encourages people to take part in Force. events. Force. <laughs> yeah, you press gang. Press gang people into taking part of events, pushing themselves, giving themselves further challenges. Everything from well, we've even had world champion. It's because uh, misery likes company. If you're going to hurt, you might as well to make other people suffer too. <laughs> it's just some sick satisfaction knowing someone else is in just as much pain and really regretting their decision. I immediately regret this decision. <laughs> Your personal pain and striving on the bike, though, this year has achieved you some pretty good results, hasn't it? I mean, I'm just a punter, to be honest. There's always someone faster and quicker and better and stronger, isn't there? Really? Not on um, this table. <laughs> yeah, no, all three of us. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's a weird one. Because you, you sort of look back and you're like, oh, I don't want to be arrogant about my performances, uh, particularly when you, you know people have performed better. And then, but then at the same time, you're like, well, considering where I come from, actually, yeah, I've done all right. Be, you had three goals for this year, didn't you? Is that right? Was it three targets? So I tend to set lots of little targets and that some that I, I mentioned to other people, some mm -hmm. that I don't mention. And, and so for every race I've got, I break it down into goals because yeah. I've met some people I ride with, really successful ones that habitually win. Yeah. And it gets to a point where they are expected to win. And so there's only, the only way is down. So you can only fail. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I tend to have like a bottom line that the, sort of the lowest I'll accept. And then I'll have like a, a target that I think is achievable. And then I'll have a target that I think I'd like to get to. And then I have like an aspirational one. I had those for every single goal. In my own way, I've I achieved all my goals. But whether where they sat on each one is yeah. depends on where you were. So like, obviously, I'd quite like to to win a national medal. So I won a national medal, but quite like to have won the first place, the gold national medal, which I didn't make. So yeah, I got my goal <laughs> goals, but I didn't get some of the aspirational ones as well, if that makes sense, you, which is why you, it what drives you on. Do you know what, Niels? I just hate it when I don't hit the gold national medal. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, but I mean, it's, why it's, it's all, it's all sort of, um, what's the best way of putting it? It's, it's like a, a sliding scale, isn't it? So like, you think, oh, it'd be really great to top 10 this, but yeah. maybe I could get squeezed into top five. And then you think, oh, imagine if I get on the podium. Yeah. And, and then the next time around, if you've done that and you've achieved that podium, you're sitting there going, well, if I got on the podium last time, I kind of want to try and beat everyone. But then you're thinking, well, I can't control everyone else. So what, what else do I need to set? So for the National 24 Hour, for example, I've got a couple of goals in my head. I didn't make one of them, which was I got second not this year, but last year in the National 24 Hour with 505 miles. So in my head, I was sort of, a little bit of me was like, well, if I, I got second last year, anything less than second would be like a, not necessarily a failure, but not quite reaching what I expect to do. But then the standard of the riders that we had this year 
was unbelievably phenomenal. And to put it in perspective, if you did 518 miles any other year than this year, you would have won the event because when you look at the winning distances, no one has not won if they haven't done over 518 miles. And other than on one particular occasion, 500 miles got you on the podium. So that's a, a frame of reference yeah. for where your standards are. 527 miles got you fourth place. No way. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> so I got, I got third. But I beat him by like half a mile, a few hundred yards. It was there was nothing in it. Mark Turnbull and then Mike pipped me by about four miles. Mike Broadworth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, the year before I'd beaten him, but he was a bit tired off of Le Jog. And then this year Graham Kemp broke the competition record with a staggering ride, five hundred forty something miles, four hundred five hundred forty four or something like that. This year, bear in mind that's about five hundred miles normally gets you on the podium, yeah. except for one occasion where someone came fourth. Um, I think like top 10 all went over five. So wow. it was a really stacked field. I mean, we had Ian Toe, who had previously tried Landon John O'Groats, does a lot of ultra endurancey bike packing type races. Uh, Mark Turnbull, Chris Hall, there's quite a few different people that were riding it that were particularly and you, good. And you got third. Yeah. And I kind of thought, if you'd asked me before I'd started, if I'd have been happy with third, I'd have been like, well, John, I'm not going to be un ungrateful about it, but I would have secretly been like, no, nah, I wouldn't be happy with it. But to come do 528 miles and come third, I absolutely over the moon. It's the best ride I've done. Yeah. And so you suddenly realise how sometimes the results aren't necessarily as important. There's always a takeaway that makes it a positive. But it, on the flip side, there's always a way to find an improvement. Going back to what I was saying about some of the people I know that habitually win, they can only lose. It's really difficult in that situation to find a take home from not achieving what you expect yeah, yeah. to achieve. Um, so I'm in a fortunate situation of not necessarily being quite good enough <laughs> that I can always do better, but then sitting nicely in the, somewhere in the middle where I can, I, I'm always quite pleased with whatever performance I've done. So I'm like, yeah, I did all my goals because I rode my bike and didn't do as bad as I thought I could have done. So. Well, eventually, you're obviously really humble about, as you said, oh, I don't want to be arrogant talking about what I've done, but because you've barely managed to mention all that, you know, we've asked you what you've done. You've So you got third in the nationals there. Now, how, how do you describe the road race? Record? So last year... I came second in the national 24 hour and then the other sort of crowning achievement for want of a better word was uh, the RRA record road record association Pembroke to Great Yarmouth Mike did sort of top down and he's sort of cajoling he's a similar one to <laughs> pushing people he tries to get everyone to do anything that he's just done so if he's done a 24 hour he'll try and make you do a 24 hour if he's just done a RRA record he'll try and make you do one so he was like yeah I think you get on your bike and ride across the country so I was like well if he's done top to bottom and at the time I was living in Berkhamsted too. Well, if I ride side to side, then basically if you want to ride across the country, Berkhamsted is the fastest place to do it from. I did that. Took about really? an hour and a half out of the record, I think. An so hour and a half? Just there or there, just slightly under. About an hour and 25, I did it in like 15 hours, something. I just wonder, you just mentioned that previously when you cycled more than 500 miles, you usually had to win secure, right? And now this time, actually, all the top 10 riders were above. Yeah, so is this because there's all of a sudden a much stronger interest in i think it's a couple of things so um on that particular day um the, and the way that the i don't know if you're familiar with the, the way that 12 hours and 24 hours work it's slightly different from a fixed distance so fixed distance you've got your course mm -hmm. you'll ride from a to b and then back to a usually mm -hmm. there or thereabouts so the conditions flip and re replicate themselves so if you've got the wind blowing westerly you'll have to ride back into it and yeah. vice versa uh -huh. over a period of 12 hours 24 hours one the weather can change quite considerably two you can go and do a lot of your distance in a slightly different location to where you started so the ride out from the start 
to the circuits because you you move from one circuit to another. You do a certain number of laps on one particular part of the course and you move on to another bit. So they, they're measured distances. So they know that if you've done the Keener Brook circuit, for example, you've done 12 miles or 14 miles or whatever it is. So they know how many you've done. And so if you've done four circuits, you've done X distance. And, and then they only have to really worry about the very end on what's called the finishing circuit where they put loads of timekeepers all dotted around them. Wherever you stop, they can interpolate where you would have been when the timer stopped from the last person you passed to the person you passed after the time has passed. Does that make sense? 24 hours passes, but you've already passed the timekeeper. Yes. You get to 24 hours, 10 minutes, you reach the next timekeeper. Yeah. They can work out where you were between the two. Oh, right. Gotcha. At the time when 24 hours was up. Yeah. Um, so it's only that last little one that actually matters in great detail because just as long as they know how many circuits you've done. So for this 24 hour, the route out was a massive hooling tailwind. I think I did like a four four hour something, 100 mile, which is relatively go, good going considering you're about to ride it for 24 hours. And we all did really fast 100 mile splits. And on top of that, the stand was really good. The weather was really kind. So there was no extremes. The first year I did a 24 hour, the weather was horrendous pigs. It was awful. I mean, John Schubert ended up in his car with hypothermia trying to warm up for a few hours. And he's an experienced rider ridden across the world. He's the former national 24-hour champion. So it was that bad. Mike just put on more layers and just carried on riding because he's just fat. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, um, sorry, relatively heavy. Um, now he's just a big lad. So he's got the bulk for it. And he also he had switched on crew. He'd done it a lot before. Um, so he knew that, that getting you're using a lot of your uh, energy up trying to keep that core temperature up mm. so they just banged on the warm kit the dry kit straight away whereas quite a lot of us myself included are riding the skin suits before we're like do you know what this rain's staying let's put some warm kit on by which time you've already like you've, it's too late this particular year there was very little difference between the daytime and the nighttime so like i put a warm a long sleeve jersey on but I think I had it half unzipped for most of the night. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. It was just about right. And then the day came round, and again, it wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. So you haven't got those extremes of temperature. So for everyone, it was quite a kind environment. And on top of that, you had a really strong field. For example, myself, Andy Jackson, who unfortunately crashed, Graham Kemp, Mike Broadworth, I'm assuming Mark Turnbull as well. All those people that are thinking to themselves, I want to have a crack at winning this, also knew, to be honest, if you want to try and win this, you need to be aiming for the competition record because that's what everyone's aiming for. So everyone is scheduling for that. So one of two things is going to happen. You've either gone out way too hard, you're not going to be able to cope with it and you'd die a death. Or everyone's going to be up, yeah. punching up in that me mix rather than just riding around and seeing what they'll do. So I think there's an element of people taking a far more scheduled approach. I mean, they used to for 24 hours and 12 hours, stop and have proper sit down feeds and stuff <laughs> back in the day. And a, a lot of the techniques and the application of uh, strategy on the 24 hour and 12 hours has really come on. And it's almost like Formula One pit crews. I think I think I had like three minutes stop time for the night to the day. So like lights on, warm kit on, gone. Um, Mike had like 90 seconds, I think. So how do we uh, trade secret? You're supposed to get the, the urine out after the bike, right? You don't leave it in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for leather. <laughs> it makes it smooth. It's actually been quite a couple of years for records then, hasn't it, really? Because, I mean... I ride for Arctic Tax now. I used to ride for Lavello before then. When I broke my record, it was for when I was riding for Lavello. And then Pete Ruffhead, the DS for Arctic Tax, said, oh, do you want to come ride with Mike? Because you know him and Josh, you know him and... In fact, you know all the people and you pretty much hang around with them anyway. That'd be great. And they've got some phenomenal talent from days gone by to nowadays. I mean, they, the experience there is brilliant. And I mean, that's one of the big issues that 
I was found with when I was riding at Viveo. Uh, Mark's phenomenal. He really wants to give people that opportunity. But if you're the person that is cajoling, convincing people <laughs> to do yeah. it, you do, and there's no one there to learn from, you kind of you hit your own limitations. Um, and so I could get people to do loads of stuff, but I was just having to learn by trial and error. Yeah. I've learned so much more this season than I have before because I have that skills and knowledge base to draw from and advice. I mean, Tim Bailey's just an absolute fountain of knowledge and John Schubert as well. And so- Is he German? Uh, he's from S- S- way. Because <laughs> <laughs> His surname sounds German. So Is it? Yeah. Uh, I well, but I give the same answer like the other day somebody asked me like so where are you from it's like Wendo <laughs> <laughs> they didn't believe me <laughs> anyways um, anyway um, but yeah so with with John and uh, Neil who was a new addition to the team we then did the team B bar that was a the on the cards Tim Bailey and Mike and Danny Axford were all trying to convince us to to do it uh, along with Pete so we're like yeah we'll do the team B bar and that's and that's the no, best British all-rounder yeah, all rounder. So that's that's a, a set of different events, and then it's the average time taken over all of them to achieve it. Is that right? Yeah. So the so you've got the, the B bar, uh, which is the best British all rounder, which is um, fifty miles, hundred miles, twelve hours, average across the three. Which then means that the it weights the fifty more, if that makes sense, because it's yep. your average speed of each one, and then it's the average of those three, rather than the time of all three, which would then yeah make a difference um so uh you then also have in that competition the team competition which is the three fastest riders from any team and that then makes up the team prize if that makes sense so they wanted to win the team b bar um so we uh set about doing that and actually john Schubert was a late addition uh he claimed that he wasn't going to uh do much racing this year is just gonna do a little bit um but one of the riders lost a little bit of motivation and sort of fell off the wagon so end up with me and neil and uh, uh john and then by the turn of the season john was flying absolutely phenomenal um to put it into perspective um we broke the competition team competition record for 100 miles so that's the three fastest um and i did like a three hour 28 minute um 100 which is pretty rapid puts you on like the fastest riders of all time list um and i'd beaten john by a minute or two by the end of the season he did something silly like a 319 three hours 19 minutes it's like 30 mile an hour average or something it's ridiculous i mean i don't exactly i'd have to look it up but he absolutely smashed it to pieces because he's a monster so yeah we with him and neil we we took the team 100 mile record so we won the team for the national 12 hour and then obviously we won the team b bar and then i found out the other day that there's a competition it's not as a it's not as formal as the uh normal b bar called the long distance bar which instead of being 50 100 12 hour it's 100 12 hour 24 hour which i then won which was a nice little add-on Fantastic. to the season arctic tax it's a race team for long distance right no, no no it's not it's so oh. you just you just hear about the long distance ones so there's matt holmes he does a lot of crits and cyclocross and then you've got danny axford who can go up hills and he does quite a lot of sporting courses and does a bit of road racing as well and then you've got quite a few some of the other lads but because i don't really do much road racing anymore because i'm tactically inept can't read a road race and shouldn't be anywhere near it because all i do is sit on the front and then wonder why i've come like 35th <laughs> just it's appalling uh, i don't see that much side of it but i think because there is quite, I don't know, something quite romantic about the adventure racing or the lo- really long distance stuff because I think 
I could say a time for 10 miles and you think, well, that's fast. It doesn't capture anything. So it's a bit like someone saying they run a really fast 5K. You're like, that's really interesting. But if someone says they did the marathon de Sable, you're like, you ran across the desert and it's a marathon. Oh, that's just insane. And I think there's an element of that is that, that people can relate to something that just seems ridiculous. And then also when you're doing like something like the 24 hour or the 12 hour, and this is what I try and say to everyone, this is how I end up convincing them that they should ride it, is that everyone's done the same thing. If you ride your bike for 12 hours, it doesn't matter if I'm fitter than you or you're faster than me, we're going to hurt exactly the same amount come the end and we're going to have gone through the same shared experience because we've all ridden our bike for 12 hours or 24 hours and particularly 24 hours it's a bit weird in that like you get this whole nighttime section and it's just all and, and when whereas on like a 10 mile or a 50 mile time trial you come hammering past someone and you just barely like they're like oh my god it's like a supersonic jet comes past you when you're sat there and the fast boys come past um like in the red bull time lapse yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I did a 25 hour uh, Red Bull time lapse and described last week how even when split into teams of four uh, as the trains were coming past exactly how I described it like you know a train has come past and you're shaking still yeah, on, yeah, the, yeah. on the, uh, the platform. It's quite cool it becomes when the tables turn it becomes you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the um but yeah as I was saying the, the tw- with the 24 hour the pace is slightly different. So you come of sort of laconically sort of stroll past people. So you have the opportunity to literally have a little bit of a chat and it's like, go on, you're doing really well. How's things kind of, oh, I've seen you again. And uh, how, how did you find that bomb? I'm feeling like I'm half asleep or I feel really rough and it's all, it's all I don't want to run anymore. <laughs> and and it, so you get that kind of, it's a, like a, it's a shared experience and it just makes it so much more of an event. And then when you get to the finishing circuit of these, because everyone is finishing a minute apart, so it's not like on a time trial where you've, you're on some dual carriageway somewhere or some backcountry road where everyone's finishing after they've done their, their distance or whatever. You know that from 2 o'clock in the afternoon till 3.30 in the afternoon, people are finishing one every minute. And so you end up, particularly up there, all the local cycle clubs end up coming up on the finishing circuit and all of the support crews, because you can't do this on your own. So you've got three or four people who have spent 24 hours with their rider. But obviously their rider only comes round every so 12 miles. So they've seen every other rider. So they know who everyone is. They know where everyone's doing. So before you know it, you're coming past and they're all shouting your name and you feel like a pro. I did the London Nocturne, which got loads of crowds banging of the timers. There's a bigger atmosphere at uh, the 24 hour than there were in terms of how you felt. And on the last lap, because they know that you're going to be finishing. So when you go past the, one of the timekeepers, they all knew that was the last time they're going to see you and you're probably going to be stopping in five ten minutes there's one last big push and the noise they're all shouting your name everyone like support crews from other people a bloke that i knew from work who was supporting someone else and he was shouting and and you come past and suddenly you go from having like been riding for 24 hours at like 200 watts to suddenly banging out like 500 watts and you go i immediately regret the decision everything's cranking <laughs> everything's cramping up it's all gonna stop i gonna yeah. you just literally get around the corner and just like oh that hurts <laughs> just for the, for the fans but, <laughs> short-term fans that have temporarily become like you've become like this. That, it must be a, it must be a fantastic experience yeah i think yeah. the hill climb the national hill climb's got a similar weird quirky vibe that everyone ends up on this hill for two or three minutes and they all shout at everyone going up it banging like cowbells and stuff and i think some of those really weird bits of time trialing history and culture just are really nice things to see so like the, the whole handing a number back and getting a cup of tea type stuff at time trying in village halls. And I mean, like 
on the National 24 Hour, three in the morning, you come past some old lady in a deck chair who's got to be like 80 years old, marking your number off as you come round. You're just like, what are you doing? It's three in the morning. I think I'm stupid for being here. But like, what about you? It's nuts. Um, oh, yeah, it's good. Well, so, um, it, I mean, whenever we meet people who have done these amazing things, and achieving in our sport at such a high level, I always have this idea that you you kind of like five years old, you were already kind of cycling for a local club or, you know, 12 years old, you, you, you kind of, you're kind of doing BMXing and all the rest of it. But from what I understand, you got into cycling a little bit later than that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I'm at a high level. It's, I'm sort of a punter to be honest, but it's just, I take it quite seriously now because I quite enjoy it. Um, so I, I wasn't particularly sporty. I can't catch a ball for love nor money. I think my mum, famously says that when she used to have to go up and watch the school football i'd be like pretending to be an airplane in the in the corner of the field or something <laughs> stupid like that um so yeah i wasn't sports driven at all and actually i didn't really get to sport until a little bit later on so i got a little bit of fitness from like a uh, time in military but i wasn't like it was a means to an end i mean i i used to smoke and drink and like i'd run but i wouldn't really I wasn't passionate about it. It wasn't an interest of mine. If someone said, oh, what's your 400 meter time or your 10K time? I'd be like, some <laughs> minutes, <laughs> some time, hours, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I just follow everyone else. So uh, it wasn't ever a thing for me. And then I was more interested in sort of rock climbing and paragliding. And I used to ride a motorcycle. I never, I never didn't own a car till relatively recently. It was always a motorbike. And then in 2009, I broke my back paragliding. And... I'd go up the stairs at work and I'd be out of breath getting to the top of them, not because I'd got fat or overweight, but just because I'd having been in a hostel bed, been told that oh, you're not going to be able to walk for 18 months and it transpired that I was after two, but having doing absolutely nothing for like two months and then being in quite a lot of pain and having to deal with that and manage that, I'd lost so much fitness and fitness, the kind of standard of fitness that you completely and utterly take for granted mm. because you just don't realise that latent fitness from being in your teenage years that you just kind of have can vanish if you just do nothing and it had it just got so being able to just wing it so to speak like i used to do when i was in the army is like go out on the town get hammered and then run an eight mile run in the morning and not be particularly fit but just get it done because i'm active yeah. that had gone and it was really quiet so i was like i need to get myself fitter i started trying to get back to running like i used to, well i say used to like that's what the only thing i really did at school was cross country a little bit uh, but not any more than the within the school. I never really sort of raced it at any kind of level. And I could do a little bit of running, but if I want to do like three days of it, the third day I'd be in an agony from my back. So someone said, oh, do some swimming. So I'd do a bit of swimming, but I look like a mixture of a dog swimming and a cannonball being thrown in the water. It's just lots of splashing and not a lot of movement. Um, I could picture do that. Do people yeah. start jumping in and trying to help yeah, you yeah, out? Yeah, they, yeah. Why is he drowning? I'm <laughs> trying to get to the other side as quickly as possible. A lot of noise, not a lot of motion. And so I'd do that. I wasn't very good at it. But again, do a couple of days of that and it would start to ache from the twisting and turning and uh, sort of motion of the body. And so someone said, I oh, don't. Don't don't do so much impact stuff or some, do some cycling. So, and you can see where this is going. I'm going to have to admit this. That I, I then went, the natural progression to that was to do a triathlon. So let's, we won't go into too much detail on that. But yeah, this, I uh, accidentally entered a triathlon. How do you accidentally enter a triathlon? So it was during the Olympics. So I sat there with a mate of mine at work and he was like, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the London triathlon. I was like, 
and a little bit about me, I, I will do anything pretty much if someone dares me or bets me to do it. So I once rode a motorcycle solo across the Sahara Desert because I had a conversation about um, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman about yeah, how yeah. Well, anyone can do that. They had a massive support crew. I could do it on my own on my motorbike and then somehow 40 quid bet down the pub <laughs> and that cost me about three and a half grand on a trip across the Sahara Desert. Um, I've got my 40 quid bet, but it cost me an awful lot of money. Um, so yeah, so there I am sat in... Um, <laughs> I could just imagine you kind of like did you walk like literally ride it something. to the pub covered in sand and walk in and just go I told you yeah it was literally was pretty much how it ended um, we should have known that before we could have come up with them <laughs> yeah, yeah and I there was a, a whole thing about Nancy the chicken who I shared a journey with when my bike broke down I was like, it's a whole you, story in itself did you but, did you eat the chicken no they did the, they, the, 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 the lads that get broke so we go massively off topic here. It's okay. But, <laughs> so the inlet manifold of my motorcycle tore, which is like a rubber bit between the, the carb. And um, it, so the, the engine was just bogged. And it wasn't going anywhere. I was like, I'm screwed. And a little bit further back had been a military, uh, police military checkpoint. They got a similar motorbike. And uh, there was, by the way, if you want to know, there's loads of phone reception in the Sahara Desert, better than around here. Um, yeah and it's mainly because there's no like line of sight issues and they've not got they've never had landlines so it's all just mobile so there i am in the middle of the desert on the phone to a mate of mine who's at home looking up the parts catalog <laughs> like yeah yeah that fits the motorbike that they've got will pretty much roughly fit your motorbike so i basically like convinced a passing locals truck to throw my bike on the back, drive me the 400 miles back the way I came to the last sort of checkpoint that I'd seen. So I could then sweet talk the policeman to basically give me the part of his motorbike to put my broken part on so he could call his base to say that his bit was broken. I fobbed him off with a bribe and then basically it was back on my way again. But on the truck was this lone chicken. They had nothing else in the back. So it's my motorbike and this chicken. <laughs> And in a, in a how big was this chicken just, that it needed a truck? Little, oh, right, right, chicken, but we're talking like a seven-ton lorry, but yeah. like you know the sort of old Bedford type. No, it's more like a, an old Bedford type. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and um, so uh, it was sort of a mixture of broken sort of French, Arabic, and and English. Uh, I ascertained that this chicken was called Nancy, and then Nancy didn't survive the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'd grown quite. I'm sat in the back of this thing with Nancy the chicken, and I'm like, it's quite cool. wasn't Wasn't there for the rest of the journey. <laughs> Yeah. Could have been Cedric. Could have been Cedric chicken. Cedric. <laughs> Could have been Cedric's Nancy chicken. Yeah. Oh. But anyway, so I've totally forgot what I was going to say. So we're going back to no, uh, let's go back to triathlon. Right, <laughs> triathlon. So you end yeah. so massively off topic. Um, so, you, so there I am, sat there, and he's going, "Oh yeah, I'm going to do a triathlon." I was like, I could, I could, I could be convinced. I could be persuaded. It's like you should do one too. Like, yeah, okay. So um, I'm up on my my phone, I've brought up the the website and I'm going through it, and um, I'm right, thanks. Um, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. I'll do the short one. Because, you know, you don't want to bite off more than you can chew. 750 metre swim, I can barely swim like three lengths <laughs> of a pool. We've been through this. And then like, oh, I've forgotten what they are. They're like, is it 30K or something like that? 50K? It's 50K? No, oh, what's the sprint distance? 50K? Well, I don't know. It's 5K bike? run. I only do 5K. Whatever, it's some, some cycling. Um, <laughs> certainly not like 500 miles. Um, anyway, so, and I was like, yeah, that's, I could probably manage that. Um in fact, I knew I could manage the cycling because the uh, again massively off topic. <laughs> oh, okay, no, I'm not even bothered. No, we want to know. <laughs> oh, so when I first got that bike, you know the one I said about trying to get myself fit on. Yeah. Um, I thought, well, I got it on the cycle to work scheme, so I thought if I'm going to have this, I may as well use it. Yeah. And I, at the time, I lived next to the canal, so I thought I'd ride from Birmingham to Berkhamsted. It was supposed to be Birmingham to London, like the whole length of the canal, but realised 
wisely that if I rode past my house, I probably would want to stop. Yeah. So yeah, I did that in a day. So that was my my limit of cycling experience at that point was a a, a particularly long, tiring journey for someone that had done no fitness training whatsoever. I was in clip for days and days afterwards. Anyway, I said, right, yeah, I've signed up. Don't lie. You can't have done. I was like, no, I have. He's like, well, no, I was talking about next year. Yeah, so was I. No, you can't be. They haven't had this year's yet. I was like, like, well, when's this year's? He's like, about three or four weeks time. You can't have, the entries have closed. I said, well, I have, look. He went, you've signed up for a charity place where you have committed to raising 500 pounds for charity and you now have to do this triathlon with about three weeks notice and you can't swim more than about three lengths. You broke your back only like about... 12 months ago and you are a buffoon what's your running like you run like phoebe from friends so very quickly decided that i best learn to do these things and have you ever tried to swim when you can't swim that well i mean i can swim but not like 750 meters go that's the first thing i did i think next day i was in the pool all right 750 meters it's about what's 25 meter pool lengths like 30 or something lengths I'll just bang out 30 lengths so I can have confidence that I can do it in the docks. Yeah, five l- laps in, I can be- I've can gone dizzy, I can barely, because I'm not breathing right, I've got no idea what I'm doing, I'm, like, I'm going to die, I'm going to drown, it's See, all going to end. What I love is at no point did you think, I'll tell you what, I'll phone the charity up and I'll just, no. Uh, no. Just I did thought, it. I'll do it. So yeah, I did it. Brilliant. And I did it, I did like a season of participation in triathlons so it wasn't like now I, I was just doing them to complete them and i did like an iron man distance i didn't do an iron man one but i did like outlaw i did a couple of the half ones and olympic distance ones and every single one of them the bike split was the quickest because let's be honest if you're running like phoebe from friends and you're swimming <laughs> like a cannonball that's been thrown in the water you, it doesn't take a much to be slightly quicker at the other things so i got this idea in my head that i was Pretty, pretty good on a bike. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> on my birthday, there was a crit at Hillingdon. And I knew nothing about bike racing other than it sounded kind of cool. I quite like that idea. Yeah, I'll, I'll race my bike. I can do that. I'm kind of a big deal. I, I, do, yeah, yeah. I do fast, slow how? bike splits. On how, hard can how, it be? how hard can it be? Three laps in, I spat out the back so hard. <laughs> and a, a bloke called Matt Carden basically politely pulled me to one time. I think you need to learn to ride with a group of people because you're just dangerous. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I am. Um, chopper. Yeah, yeah, massive chopper. Like, m- like more than Anna. And, um, yeah. And uh, so I, um, I then started getting spat lots in bike races and sitting on the front like a hero for the first 20 minutes and then wondering why everyone had gone past me for the rest of it then it got to the point where i was sort of getting fed up of not performing i was like i'm putting all this time in i'm riding my bike lots and i i mean i'd progress now to taking it serious well, i say seriously i'd it was the thing i was doing I was, I was and i was doing it lots and i was riding my bike every weekend with a local cycling club and i was getting into racing and but i had no one to draw on because the cycling club that i was riding for at the time was quite new so it didn't have any experience to draw from and then they were very keen and I can totally understand why on supporting sort of the inclusivity of it, you know, like sportives, slower ranges, but it was no drive for people that wanted to look at the performance side of things. They wanted to better themselves and I'm kind of internally competitive. I'm actually I'm not that bothered about if we were racing, I wouldn't mm. mind if you beat me. I, I'd be more bothered about the fact that I'd let you beat me. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's more about my yeah, yeah. personal competitiveness and it is the external ones getting sort of involved with Mark at Lavello and so sort it's of trying to drive that forward. But at the same time, my kids were at a family cub camp with Mike Broadwith 
And so Mike, Mike's family was at the cub camp and we sit around the cub, uh, the open fire and he was talking about the 24 hour. And you know that bit where you sort of have this bet and the conversation and I somehow signed myself up to something that yeah. was a little bit out of my, yeah. So I mocked him a little bit too much for not doing road racing and he was humoring me because he has done a fair amount of road racing. And uh, he basically said, well, you should do a 24 hour bike race because they're great because he quite likes trying to get people to do these things. Mm. But yeah, why not? How, how, hard could, how hard can it be? <laughs> how hard can it be? <laughs> Fortunate for me, the 24 hour that year was actually when we were on holiday. So I was like, oh, I'm really sorry about this. I'd love to. I really would. But I can't. I'm on holiday. Don't worry, Nick. There's a 12-hour when you get back. <laughs> so my first time trial that I did was in the Eka 12-hour time trial with a, a bloke called Lloyd and Bethany. That and was we, your first ever yeah, time and, trial. And Mike, Mike was our hours. support crew. So Mike, Mike Borith was passing us about our bottles and stuff. I borrowed a time trial bike off someone that I'd literally ridden it once before around the block in the, my little uh, bit. And I, I did a club 10 on it. So my first open time trial was 12. I'd done club 10. All right. So I did a, a club 10 on it just to check it. It worked all right. Having never ridden a TT bike, never mind like this particular bike. And then went and did a 12 hour on it. Which was, was good fun. Uh, Lloyd and me did a bit of more bits and pieces and for the rest of this uh, season, a couple of seasons later. And then he went off to do other things and moved away. And he's um, he's racing the Atlas Mountain Race with me this year. But not Lloyd. Not, not as a pair. Yeah, Lloyd. So he's, he's returned to bike racing in the same way that he just <laughs> arrived at the 12 hour. He's just rocking up for the Atlas Mountain Race. So. Wow. Do you know, I, yeah. I can now see why when we talk to other people, you've been mentioned so many times by other people normally for being the instigator and the cajole and getting people to do stuff. And you can see where, like, if you're the kind of person that's like, how hard can it be? And then I can imagine the sense of when you meet other people, you're stood there looking at them going, well, look, if I can do it, yeah, I yeah. know it's possible. This is why you can do it. This is why you need, you, you constantly refer to like, oh, you're a high level. I don't see myself like that at all. So everything's logarithmic. So I'm really mindful that I'm a lot quicker than I used to be. So there's people that I used to ride with that would look at me and go, I can't ride with you anymore because you're too fast. And, and I, I get that. But every sort of like step along the way, there's people faster than you. I race time trials with people like Adam Duggleby, who's a, uh, a stoker for uh, a Paralympian. So he's got gold medals at Paralympics. And he's way quicker than me. So you've got him and you've got Mike and you've got Stu Travis and Ben Stowe and John Schubert, all these people around you and Anna, they're all quicker. So to me, I don't feel like I'm really fast or really great because I can see people better. But then it's on that sliding scale, isn't it? Yeah. And it's about making people realise that I am literally, if you round the clock back four years, exactly where you're sat now. It's just the only difference is, is that I'd rather not talk as much to my wife. So I just go to the shed and go to the turbo trainer. <laughs> and it's interesting. Is that where uh, a lot of your training happens then? Because to, to try and fit in around having a full-time job, having a family and stuff, how, how do you split your training and, and keep yourself motivated so when you when it's not there's not like a race? Right I do cheat. So uh, I got a coach and I think it makes a huge difference off the trip peg training plans from places like uh, trainer road or Sufferfest or whatever it might be. They're great to get you on your bike and they are, they do, they don't, get, they don't do anything wrong. If that makes sense. Yeah. But you, your big gains are from a really switched on coach that, and I mean a coach, not a trainer, because there is a difference in that. So like Mark Powell who coaches me, he's really, really good at, at being able to that, that work out, 
the other influences in my life that need to make adjustments for. So he gets a little bit stressed out and I've had things happen. So I had a really busy week at work at tail end of this week, which kind of fluffed up my training. And I was like, I can't do this three hour long ride on the day. He's like, okay, it's not a problem. And he'll just change my pattern around and he'll, he'll switch it out for turbo and stuff like that. I do quite a bit of stuff either on the way in or out of work. I do quite a lot of stuff on turbo, either in my work lunch break or when I get home. I try and get out at the weekend for a long ride, but then I've got to temper that with family commitments. I can, you can easily, and I'm, without impacting on like your family life, you can easily get 10 to 12 hours training in a week. It's just you have to box clever about it. So, for example, tonight... By the time I get back, I know my wife, because she likes to go to bed early, will already be in bed. So there's no point in me just going to bed. I might as well go turbo because I'm not losing anything. She's not missing out on my company because she's going to be fast asleep. If I am if I get up early in the morning, I know that on a Saturday morning, because the kids are all worn out from a week at school and my wife wants a bit of lay-in, no one's even going to be up doing anything meaningful by 10 o'clock in the morning. So if I go out early enough, I'm back at 10.30. I've only, uh, they've only really had 30 minutes where they're going, oh, now you're out and about, uh, up and about. So it's about really picking that time click and, and choosing it wisely. You probably spend, if you were to go on your phone and look at the apps that tell you how long you've been sat on Facebook, you probably easily waste two hours a day on Facebook. I do that too, but I'm sat on the turbo. <laughs> so the, I think there's a lot of that. It's people go, oh, I don't have the time. And you actually go, well, do you know what? You're only actually at work for this much time. If your commute on the train, it takes an hour, but it takes an hour and a half for you to ride home. You take, that's only half an hour extra of your time, but you've ridden home. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of that. And your training is done. You don't have to do it. On yeah, top yeah. Of it. I mean, the, the problem comes when you get to certain points in the season or certain sessions, like you just can't do them on a commute. But if, the, if your session is hour and a half easy, you can do that on a commute home. You just ride home at an easy pace. It's different if you've got like five minute intervals or something like that. But, but that's really interesting because when we interviewed Dr. Ian Walker, who did the record for the north of Europe to the south, yeah. he actually said uh, he had about, I think it was about an hour and a half commute. And he said it was really interesting when he sat down with his coach and they broke it down, what, what he could do. He could get a hell of a lot of his training in on that commute because he was able to stick at a certain power because the particular route that he could take. And he could get huge amounts in there. So yeah. like he said, even though he was training for some And extending really them as well. So l last season, my coach wanted me to do some really long rides. Not many of them. So despite doing like 24 hour raging, I don't do, I think I didn't do any real rides over four hours and not that often. I mean, three hours was probably a staple diet, but there was one big block where I had to do three back-to-back six-hour rides. So I was uh, I was working shift at the time, I was working night. So all I did was roll them off the back of the last set of nights. So I did came off the nights and then did the two-hour ride home and just carried on riding for another four. So you can you can just wedge it in. And how do you keep the drive for the motivation? Because I can imagine when you're, you're doing that sort of training, yes, you've, you've worked out a way to fit it in, which which is brilliant. And great advice, I think, for all of us. Uh, but the, uh, how do you then maintain that motivation to get on the bike in that like short half hour that you got? Because you know it's going to be a busy day. Or how do you maintain that uh, motivation when you're on the bike to put in that effort during sort of like on those evenings, like tonight? You're going back. You're going to get in the shed. It's cold, and you're gonna you're yeah, gonna put really the effort in. What is it that, that focuses to that? What is it that focuses you? Yeah, I don't want to talk you out of it. Um, right, so... <laughs> what focuses you so like, on your motivation? I've got a friend of mine, Chris Murray. She's a um, national 24-hour champion. And she happens to be coached by the same person as me. So we've sort of got like a little WhatsApp group where basically I mock her, she mocks me, just generally bully each other. And so there's an element of peer pressure there to make sure stuff gets done. On top of that, 
I mean, I, I find things like Strava really good for motivating me because I know that everyone will know that I haven't done a session if I haven't posted it. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, the whole, like, if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen. Yeah. There's an element of like, well, if I have three days off the bike, people will know I've had three days off the bike. So there's a little bit of that as well. So that whole peer pressure in the different shapes and forms has, I think, a significant effect. Yeah. And then the other thing is you've got to have goals. Like I sent you before about like, aspirational ones like sort of your main goal that you'd really 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 like to get but you recognize might be a little bit high and then you have a a a lower tiered one that you'd quite you'd be really really pleased with and then uh, accepted one and then one that below which you'd feel really disappointed and you can then sort of slide from that so you have to set those in the season so like i i really want to do x thing i really want to do y thing Do do you have them like written down next to your turbo like no, but wall. again, going back to Chris Murray, I know she had, uh, so the first 24 hours she did, she went out too hard and um, she she just nosedived off a cliff and Mike always does these really cool graphs plotting the races and he plot, he, he made the graph of her f- her failure as she, as she uh, <laughs> will tell you. And um, so she got it printed onto a canvas and hung it in front of her turbo. <laughs> wow. To motivate herself, you need to train so that does not happen Painful. next year. And then she smashed it, and obviously she won. Yeah, and then she's now got the pair of them as a set and uh, up. Really? So, yeah, yeah. So I don't have anything like that, to be honest. I mean, I've got. Don't get me wrong. I've got like things on the walls just to out sort of keepsakes, but they're not there to motivate me. It's not like a like Rocky. You've not got like you montage. You want a po- I, ha- I have got. Opponent. I have got some power ballads that I, for my, my turbo, but uh, uh, some some eighties cheese. Um, but, you know, I think for me, uh, so one of the difficult ones of this season, actually, is having a really great season last season and a really great season this season before. You're kind of mindful and you think, do you know what? I'm not sure I can achieve better than that. And actually, there's a realistic chance that I might achieve less, but I won't necessarily have achieved less. I'll just It'll just be a different kind of yeah. um, yardstick. And, and then you start thinking, well, I'm doing the same sort of race program. I'm just repeating myself ad nauseum and eventually this will come to a point where the faster people come past and they're better and you just sort of slowly with because you're only as good as your own last race so consequently to motivate myself for this season i'm doing something very different uh, at the start of the season just so i've got something some interest to get me yeah. through that winter and then i'll do that and there'll be no pressure on that i don't i don't honestly i don't care where i come with that it'll be great to finish it and if I don't, if I finish it, it'd be great to come somewhere in the middle of the pack. If if yeah. it's not middle of the pack, top 10 would be great. And if I'm in the mix at the top end, that'd be great too. But none of those, again, it's exactly what I was saying to you about setting those different goals. I just want to have something different to focus my training on. Yeah. So, and some of that means that whereas I do three hour long ride in the winter on my own can be really hard to drag yourself out when it's cold. At the weekend, I went out for a three-hour mountain bike ride with one of the blokes that works at Lavello, uh, Josh, and had an absolute blast. Did the same amount of training load, but just in a, an environment where I was learning loads because I can't ride off-road. It's much like my swimming, <laughs> but on a mountain bike. So, <laughs> but you can't drown. No, but you, you can almost drown in mud. So the <laughs> first like bridal way we went on, the first slight bend, uh, I... St- put the whole bike on the deck he was in stitches um, and then and then i managed to stay upright for the entire rest of the bike ride and then in the last uh, 10 minutes there's this tiny little mound and i yeah i went full send 
sideways completely onto my backside on my ass he was in stitches as well uh, yeah i can't ride off road for selfie so I'm, but i need to learn from yeah. uh the atlas mountain race so i'm just doing lots of that and it's quite nice to have something different so you're still getting that same trainer load but you're motivating yourself in a different way and you can tell with yourself that um with the kind of uh, challenge you've you've done i think that it sounds to me like you need something that doesn't obviously seem apparent that it can be achieved you need something where it's like I'm going to have to work towards it. And it sounds to me like some of the times the challenge is not, not fitness. So if it's almost like, like you say, 24 hour, you've done that, you've achieved really, really well, but you want a new challenge. I mean, that's why you did a triathlon after, you know, baking your, breaking your back. And then that's why you've done all these. Baking it. Baking your back, breaking your back. That's why you did, you know, you know, for a bet, you did the cycling, uh, riding a motorbike across the Sahara and eating poor old Nancy and all that kind of stuff. So (laughs) I didn't eat Nancy. Don't you dare put on me. If they ain't Nancy, I would have saved Nancy if I'd known that was Nancy's fate. <laughs> Good that they didn't eat you. They could have done. Who'd have yeah. known? <laughs> I, I can really see how you, you kind of need to mix it up a bit. So, But you've mentioned there about the Atlas Challenge, and I guess this Atlas is one of race, the, yeah, yeah. Atlas Man- so, so describe this race to us, because I know I this is a big know. thing for next year. You I don't, don't know. No. Just entered it on a whim. <laughs> um, so, I met this bloke in the pub. And yeah. <laughs> no, so I... Um, you must have seen things like the transcontinental race, yeah, yeah, the Silk Road yeah, Mountain yeah, yeah. race. Well, that Silk Road Mountain race is basically nails, and you have to recognise when something's a little bit beyond your scope. And I think jumping straight into something like the Silk Road Mountain race would probably be a little bit much. Tour Divide, you heard of that? Yeah. So it's basically a mountain bike race across America. There's another one called the Transatlantic Bike Race, which is the same thing, but on the road. And there's Ram. You heard of Ram, which is like yeah. a supported race across America. Ridiculously oh, yeah, expensive. Yeah. Douglas, Douglas entered yeah, it. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. expensive when you add all yeah. the costs of support crews and all that sort of stuff. So I like that romantic idea of the whole bike packing unsupported race type stuff. So, so I it, st- sounds, it sounds to me like you were looking for something that was kind of like fairly challenging, but one that could be done and, and that wasn't going to cost the world. So, so, so what is this event? So this is so, again so. Uh, uh, the having sort of a, a perusal around, I need to find. I needed to find something that wasn't going to impact on the whole of my season. So a lot of these races are in the middle of the race season. I could do them, but then it'd wreck the rest of the season for something that was just a bit of fun, for want of a better word. Um, so you look at, at each end of the each end of the season. So um, the Atlas Mountain races in Morocco. I spent quite a bit of time in Morocco. I backpacked there before, and then I've ridden motorcycles through there so and uh, some of the route i've even ridden on uh, on a motorbike many years ago not not now i kind of got an understanding of what the country's like the infrastructure of that country so when someone's saying something's remote in morocco i know what that means i can visualize it yeah, i've yeah. been there and when people are talking about oh yeah there's this resupply point it's this kind of thing i know what that means and i can put that into a context so it's not completely alien but i also know that it's not like Riding from Hemel to Berkhamsted or and wh- whatever. And what's the distance for the seventeen hundred k? So it's it's it works on the same principle as all of those sort of unsupported races. No support, outside help. Clock starts, clock stops when you get to the finish. <laughs> I have to go past certain checkpoints. And you have to do it alone, or can you do it? You so, said, you, the, 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 so, so I could I could have chosen to do it as a pair, yeah. but then you yeah, have to talk to someone else. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I wouldn't want to do it as a pair I think if you do it as a pair that's that's a, a huge amount of challenge because I'm really hard to live with my wife tells me imagine being on with a bike with me and you have no choice but to cycle along with me I, for like 1700 I can only imagine what you'll have talked them into by the end oh, they'll just, have got off with a long list of different events face, they've got to, have to do before they, they just get got to so it. annoyed so my flight to Morocco is costing me more money to fly my bike than it is to fly me 
Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it costs like 86 so quid to fly me there and back. And it's costing me 120 quid to fly my bike there and back. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so like, what do you bring then? Do you bring like a tent and... Uh, so again, it's, it's all a little bit of a journey into the unknown. So like, and I, I keep having this like internal panic and wrestle of, of what everything from which tires to, to which bike to, to what's, whether I go suspension, not suspension, power bank, dynamo. Um, so I, I'm pretty comfortable with my sleeping setup because I have slept drunk in bus shelters after nights out on a Saturday night many occasions so i know that you don't good training yeah, good yeah. training yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no seriously i i, I sleeping outside is no big deal and bivying or whatever you want to call it i'm quite comfortable with that uh the concept of it how to do it how to go about it what what that means for what temperature range um so that aspect of it is pretty straightforward the issue is it comes back to the fact i can't ride a bike off road so I was, I was thinking <laughs> i was thinking it's slightly more lumpy than coming yeah, on the yeah. so and, and it, the, the frustration is is when you look at it it's annoyingly you could go do the bits that aren't off-road really fast on a faster kind of bike but i have not got the off-road skills to take a sort of a, a borderline bike so like a gravel bike that could be quite fast but you'd have to have some skill to not punch every five seconds on some of the sort of rough stuff I'm going to have to go for something that's got far more mountain bike bias to cover up for the fact that I can't ride a bike off road. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, totally. And then that, that I have a drawback of, so I'm constantly wrestling that. Luckily, Mark, who works at the Velo, absolutely fantastic, knows everything there is to know about off road stuff. So he's basically talking me through it all and, and, and we're sort of sorting out what bike to use. And he's been really great because I don't have things like bike luggage because it's not my sort of thing. So Madison, they sort me out with the bike luggage for it so that I, I, I've got the bike luggage and they're sorting me out with the warm kit that I know that I'll need and they've been really good. So, But I guess it's also, when you break something like that down, there is, it's about managing risk, isn't it, to a certain degree? Like the way you just described that, you know, how do you balance the risk? Uh, yes, you could go faster on, a, on, on, a, on certain sections, but actually what the last thing you need to do is uh, on the really lumpy bits, fall over and hurt yourself because then that's a real, you know, that, that could... I mean, you know, you, you can't get to the end, you know, slightly quicker if you, if you fell over. So having a bike that's a bit more robust, that can take more of the hits, that can keep you on the bike a bit longer. I guess so. I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing. I have no idea. And that's the great thing about it. So, like, if I go to a time trial, I when I first turned up, I hadn't got a clue. So I just sort of work it out, speak to people. You build up a wealth of experience with other people, and then you, you go do one, you tweak it, you adjust it, you change things. I mean, like, my my race setup for a TT, TT is I've got it pretty much down nailed. I might tweak some things after I've seen something else that someone else has done. Might chat to someone and we go, you know, I like that. I don't like that. But I'm pretty happy where that is. I'm in a completely uncharted realm where it's great because, like, like I said, I just to turn up, ride my bike. Do you know what I mean? Sort of pedal, get to the other end. So yeah, that's how I've done. If I've got the wrong bike and I, it means that I'm not at the sharp pointy end, then it doesn't matter. I'll, I've learned from that. And then if I want to do it again. I'll know, well, do you know what? I didn't need that. I didn't need this. I brought that and I could have just chucked it or I really wish I'd had like, I don't know, food or something. <laughs> is that a predefined route? Or so yeah, so unlike the transcontinental race where you get set checkpoints and what they call parkour, which is like sections that you must ride, the whole route for the Silk Road Mountain Race and the Atlas Mountain Race and quite a lot of the others like the Transalba and the Transatlantic Way, there's various other ones that they have a set route. And I kind of... And that was in my criteria. I'd rather have a set route than a route that I planned. I can plan a route, but I just wanted something that they, for me doing for my first 
time for want of a better word it was the element was the unsupported aspect of it not the route planning and the unsupported element of it and then the, the competition aspect of it and you've got there's only so many variables you want to start throwing into the mix before otherwise it just becomes it, so much can then go wrong so quickly that it just stops being fun and just becomes miserable yeah. and so for me I, as much as i like a challenge I, I do secretly quantify a little bit more so like for example my sahara desert trip i could already ride a motorbike quite competently i've been riding one my whole life and i literally hadn't ha- ever had a car I knew exactly what bike I needed, what kit I needed. Uh, again, coming back to the bivying, living out in the desert, I'd done a tour of Afghanistan. So I, like, I kind of knew that kind of environment. So, yeah, it was, I've been to Morocco backpacking. As much as it does seem like I've just gone, woke up one morning, I did oh, to do something random. There is an aspect of uh, applied knowledge from it. Yeah. With, I think with uh, what we've heard, it's just, just incredible to go from, and what I love to hear in your voice already is, the first time I do this bike packing, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I might. I can it, already. But... I can already hear that. Oh yeah, they so said the Silk Road would be the next one. Then the Transcontinental. Then the. I, I don't. Could... Know, I don't know. So if I, if if I was to enjoy it, and if I was to put in for another one, I, I think the Silk Road Mountain Race. It's quite quite an appeal because it is so remote, yeah. and it is so. It's, it's less bike racing, more adventure. Yeah. If that makes sense, it's not like an adventure. It's it's just a full on. Happens to be racing a bike at the time, using a bike as a form of transport, like my Brompton. <laughs> Not, you, I wouldn't do it on my Brompton. I mean, like, just well, a, there you go. A, so I think <laughs> with a challenge. Well, yeah. there's a pair. There's <laughs> a pair. I, I <laughs> dare <so> you. <laughs> I just think people forget their their transports to get you from A to B, and particularly if you you're running around in your like when you're racing up and down roads or whatever, or you're out in your club runs. I know lots of people that have got their bicycle and they don't actually use it to go places. Now I use mine all the time to commute to work. If that's Brompton to the train station or it's my bike all the way in to London, that's what it's there for. And I think you're missing a trick if you just use it for playing on. So you've talked about all the things you've got planned and we've got this with the Atlas bike. There's going to be moments on that day, on those that ride that's going to be like, oh, this is just fabulous. But looking back with all the different stuff you do, can you remember what would be described as your best day on the bike? The moment where you've been on the bike and you've just gone, oh, this is an awesome day to be on a bike. I like sunsets and sunrises. Does that sound really lame? Um, it's so very but, romantic. But just riding along yeah, into so, a sunset so, or pushing hard what's so into a sunset? The 24-hour, um, you sort of break it down into sort of three stages. So, well, at least I do. I don't know what anyone else does. They might break it down into 10-minute intervals. Um so you sort of start off and you sort of get up, get 100 miles under your belt, see where you're at. And then for me, I'm like, right, let's ride till it gets dark. And it's the night time. And then you're like, let's ride to midnight. And then you're like, let's ride to the morning. And then the sunrise. And then it's, let's ride till we get to the finishing circuit. And then it's ride on the finishing circuit. And that's how I break it down. And so because you've got nighttime, daytime, it's like that BBC, nighttime, daytime, nighttime. Because <laughs> um, you've got them so clearly in your head when they come round, you've been anticipating it. So you're really consciously aware. You're like, there's the sun and you watch it rise and you are, so it's becomes, it's almost like a kid waiting for Christmas or something you've been really anticipating. Like the, the thing uh, you must've done it where like uh, Neil's with your kid, waiting for your kid to be born and yeah. all these things that you wait for and you almost waste your life waiting for and my mum always used to say it like you'll waste your life, life away waiting for your birthday or whatever when you were a kid and you're asking for your, when's your birthday going to be and um so you're sitting there literally waiting for the sun to rise and so when it rises you're paying so much attention to it so it has much more value um and because of that that then knocks on so 
when I ride my commute home and I ride over the top of Ivinghoe Beacon and I drop down into where I live, I literally can see the whole of the Aylesbury Vale, usually as the sun's setting. And I'm like, oh, do you know what? I really like sunsets. Yeah. So I quite like being on my bike when there's that big change in the environment. So you, you sort of ridden through to the morning or you've ridden to the nighttime. So to say one specific moment, it's not necessarily one specific moment. It's just that that change. So I'm, and I'm watching it as you're just ticking along. That's going to be um, amazing in Morocco, isn't it? I mean, that's going to be amazing. Or I'll be miserable. I'll be <laughs> tired. I'll be having a diva moment, demanding things that, that aren't there. So I haven't got a support crew. I've got a thing. There's a famous thing about cans of Coke. So on the first ever 12 hour I did, I asked for a can of Coke because in my head, you know, the little ones that the pros yeah, have. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in my head, there's that around the back half of the circuit where there wasn't anyone. I was going to open one of these and drink it. It'd be a nice little pick-me-up 10 miles around that circuit. I thought of that, rode round. So that's five miles to ride round to my support crew, Mike, and to my wife. I said, um, I want a small can of Coke. So obviously I tell them that for the next time they come round. So that's five miles gone. 10 miles later, I'm like, ah, I can't wait for it. I've been the whole 10 miles. I'm, I'm going to get it. I'm going to put it in my back pocket. I'm going to ride round to the back of the circuit. It's going to be brilliant. It's gonna, um, this is the real anticipation i come around and bless them my wife had thought you know it's gonna be really hard to open that and drink that whilst riding your bike we've got this old fruit shoot bottle here we'll decant it into a fruit shoot bottle and then we'll pass it up to him like that to say i was livid <laughs> is an understatement and i, I said a number of expletives <laughs> threw it back at them in a proper <laughs> full-on demo. I said a small boom, Launched it. Mike was appalled at how dare I speak to my wife like this. My wife was like, well, I might as well pack up and go home. You. <laughs> and then um, and off I went and the, in a massive huff for so 10 more miles I was living with them how could they have got it so wrong how did they not know what I was I thinking I knew exactly what I wanted anyway fast forward to the 24 hour um, and uh, I can't remember which one it was but I came round I was like I want a small can of coke and uh, again I, I was thinking right I'll, um, I'll put it in my back pocket far end there's no way after the coke gate of the 12 they can't hour, get this they can't wrong, get this wrong. they had thought do you know what it's quite cold we'll open the can for oh. him. i was livid i was very livid <laughs> again but it gets better so the next time i come round, they do it exactly right mm -hmm. they don't open it they pass it up it's so cold i can't open the can <laughs> and i'm just throwing on the floor in a massive fit so yeah there's this whole thing about me being a diva and yeah coke can so um without anyone to support me yeah. on, a, on a bike ride like that i'll probably be having a right little tantrum with no one to even vent at well i feel terrible now we've only provided you with non-alcoholic beer and pizza it's been terrible no, it's been brilliant that's why you need this chicken you have to buy a chicken and bring it with you I'm not eating nancy nobody can shout at her <laughs> maybe a lucky chicken yeah maybe but wasn't it one of our people we spoke to who said, I expected a chair, then there wasn't a chair. Oh, it was Richard Thoda, yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, uh, that was, he really was doing, good. When he was doing the Land's End to John O'Groats on a penny farthing, he said, uh, I don't actually manage, I think we had to cut this out. We didn't have enough time to put it into the episode. So no one no one on your podcast will have any clue what we're talking no, about no, now. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> exactly. let, me, let me explain. Uh, You'd uh, have to splice it in. Richard will know. Well, no, Richard <laughs> will know. And, and what Richard was saying is that... Um, He'd got his team and they were stopping at certain points. Apparently, and running penny farthing, you can't go nearly as yeah, far yeah. in one, one session because you're actually using quite a lot of your upper body in the position. 
So they, they'd had to split it down. He had to sit down. I think he got like 10 minutes and then carried on. And what they had was they had a little uh, uh, chair for him. They got the food ready. So he'd do his stop, food, sit down, certain amount of time and off he'd go. And what they'd noticed was, he said it was really easy, obviously, was that that 10 minutes or whatever the break was had turned into 10 and a half, then 11. And then they'd got people that were coming along to support him and it was turning into 12 minute breaks. And of course, what they realised is that really quickly he was taking up far too much time. So he came into one of his stop and they didn't put the chair out. If you can imagine, my God, I mean, Richard's a really nice bloke. Imagine if he'd been you, that would have been it. <laughs> but they'd, uh, they'd... Where's my chair? <laughs> I would have had a proper sense of humour failure. But, but generally... And I'm not, I don't get stressed out normally. <laughs> but you know, he, he, he genuinely was like, he was really disappointed, you know, where's his chair? That moment when you are knackered and you are flat out and you stop and something like that's happened. He said he was like looking down, looking for this chair and it wasn't there. He said he, you just get completely unreasonably kind of like... Because you... Up. You've got nothing else to think about yeah, except yeah. the things that you are thinking about. Yeah, so you, if you've got a plan and it does it and it, it deviates from it, you're like, well, why, why, why is it not? The fact that you've not seen anyone for the last half hour, they've got no knowledge that you've got a really burning desire for sports mix and they pass you up beef jerky. Yeah. Like, I don't want this. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> because you focus so badly on this one thing and yeah. you want it. and then if it's Particularly when you've got... It's crazy. Not a lot to do. Mm. You're just pushing down on the pedals, aren't you? So your brain's thinking. You think about all sorts of things, what you're going to do next week, what you did last week, all these other different bits and pieces, and then you're like, yeah. I'm really, 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 really want Jaffa cakes right now. <laughs> I didn't pack any Jaffa cakes. I know, I'm going to give them a completely unreasonable demand. <laughs> I would like Jaffa cakes next time. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 don't, we don't have any Jaffa cakes. Caviar. <laughs> White wine. Pecan pie. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and, and the best thing is, when you come back around and they pass it up, you're like, oh, let's see what else I can ask for. <laughs> I would like... Stuffed so quail eggs, please. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite good. So with, uh, I mean, look, you've done all these different events, you've done all these different things, and you've mentioned the support crew there. Oh, they're mega. You, I was going to say, you must have some thank yous to these guys that have managed to help you. Who, who are the people that have kind of, that have, have helped you achieve these goals? Are, the ones that, are there any ones that you particularly want to mention? I've got the same kind of support crew for most of the events. So Ben Stowe, who's a local ad, he looks like Tintin, but more of a weeble um, version of Tintin. He's absolutely fantastic, and he's he's supported me on most of them. And then Mark Powell, um, my coach, he's, he's come out with way beyond more than he, he needs to to support a record attempt and 24 hour against Stu Travis. I mean, I've mentioned loads of these people before. Yeah. Kristen Stolpe, who's um, a friend of – she rides for Lovello, uh, Squadron. Mm -hmm. Jenny Lake as well, she rides for – and her other half, Rob Abbey. And then my wife and Mike, they've all been, like, instrumental in and sort of supporting me for those events. I suddenly I've forgotten someone. Oh, Liz Powell, Mark's other half, and John Schubert as well. He's absolutely fantastic. So it's because it's a bit of a team effort. So being really good, and they've been really, really helpful. And they don't. I mean, who, who'd want it? It's not staying up for twenty four hours either. It's like thirty six hours because mm. someone's got to set up the gazebo, prep all the bottles. It ain't going to be me because I'll go and ride my bike. They've got to get all those little cans of Coke ready as well. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of yeah. crazy. They they do it for you, right? Yeah, yeah. For, for no reason other than they want to see you succeed. It's brilliant. Exactly. And so you end up. That's why I end up like sort of jumping in the back of the support vehicle for Chris Murray and Tim Bailey and Adam Rawley because kind of, it's, it's not to pay it forward sounds so cheesy it's not about that at all it's just these things don't work unless people want to just see other people succeed and i, I something great about being part of a, 
an environment where someone else does something really well. And if that's helping someone realise that they can ride for 12 hours without stopping, that ha- that isn't top of their game, but just wants to do it, and you sort of give them the hints and the tips and you help them and you help them with their feeding plan or whatever it might be and advice for riding it and they go and do it, you get to share that experience. And if you're at the sharp pointy end and you're helping someone pass up bottles at the top of Carter Bar when it's like two degrees centigrade and she's trying to break a record that's been around since the 50s, again, just you willing that person to succeed is absolutely great. So if people want to follow you, um, the best place to follow you is most probably, I guess, Instagram and yeah, Strava? In Instagram and Twitter is probably the best one. I am on Strava, but um, so I don't know how you'd, how you'd find me. On Instagram, it would be the... In underscore Nicarus. That's it. And then at Icarus Velo, I think, for Twitter. And if people want to follow us, what, did, what do they need to do, Mike? Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, Velocino PDCST. If you want to email us, it's either mike at velocino.com or if you have any complaints, it's niels at velocino.com. And if you want to see more uh, about Velocino and stories that have been made and even look at some of the merchandise, you can just head over to velocino.com. Nick, thank you so much for coming in to Casa Velocino and sharing some of your stories with us. It's been fascinating listening and learning about how you train, what you've trained for. I hope you'll be in to tell us uh, more about your Atlas race once you've completed it next year. If. And for all our listeners, we will be back soon because at Velocino, the best stories have not yet been written. Da-dum.